0: This podcast is produced by students in the University of Pennsylvania's pre-health post-baccalaureate programs. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the podcast creators and our guests and do not necessarily represent the views of pre-health programs. To find out how the University of Pennsylvania can help prepare you for health professional school, visit upenn.edu prehealth Hello there, listeners. You are listening to Dean Wirtz with Penn Pals, bringing you Philadelphia's stories from a distance. And today we have Dr. Sukolka Basu, who is a um, lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as an advisor for the Pre-Health Liberal and Professional Studies Program over at Penn. Um, she received her... A bachelor of Science at St. Xavier's College in India in 2000. She received her Master's of Science at the University of Calcutta in India in 2002. And she got her PhD here in Philadelphia at Temple University in 2010. And if there's anything I missed, uh, Dr. Basu, about any honors you may have gotten or any uh, studies that you are particularly proud of, that would be a great time to jump in and say hello.
1: Thank you very much, Dean, for your introduction. Uh, Well, I think you provided a really good summary um, uh, of uh, my academic career. And uh, while at Temple, I really, uh, I started, Uh, looking into the different um, avenues of research in physics and what really caught my interest is theoretical condensed matter physics. So that was the broad um, topic of research that I was interested in and slowly I drilled down into systems of interest and then I pursued my uh, research in that and completed my PhD or doctoral studies from Temple on that.
0: Excellent. And theoretical condensed matter physics, of course, is the uh, topic we're going to be getting into today. But before we do that, I would love to hear a little bit more, because primarily you are a lecturer and you're teaching physics here at the University of Pennsylvania. So what got you interested instead of going the pure research route, instead going into teaching the youths uh, physics one and two?
1: Well, physics, like I always think in my mind, is not my profession, it's my passion. So, uh, and more so teaching physics. I was probably tutoring my brother since I was in 10th grade. So I really got into uh, this early on like when I was even uh, in school, in high school. So uh, why I was interested in this is because of how relatable the subject is like, you know, you talk about all the different gadgets in your life, be it a microwave, be it like a refrigerator or any other appliance that you use, all the cool technology that you have, it all has its underlying principles in physics. And it always fascinated me how physics is uh, utilized in everyday life. Uh, and we kind of take it for granted to some extent uh, without even thinking, oh, I am really using physics while I'm thinking through this uh, life problem, right? Um, so uh, I started um, tutoring since I was in like, you know, uh, in my uh, undergrad studies and I really had, I would say, a a special interest in that. So even though I was interested in physics as a discipline, I found that being able to communicate what I learned and then learning through discussion with my students helped me understand it better. Because sometimes you may go through a specific principle Or theory of taking a lot of assumptions for granted. But when you're presenting it to the students and they ask you questions associated with something, either you know the answer to that or you don't. So if you don't know the answer to that, that implies that you would have to think through and, like, you know, go back and research on that yourself. Um, And that is always a great learning process. So teaching is the best way to learn. I think. And uh, that is what motivates me to keep teaching. Um, So that's the primary reason. Other uh, reasons why I love teaching. Um, One, uh, because um, I usually get this like uh, reaction when I tell uh, children or like, you know, uh, even adults, like I teach physics. It's like, whoa really why physics so there is a stigma associated with physics like you know oh you really have to know your math to be able to do physics but uh, what is important to realize is that physics utilizes math as a tool it is a discipline in itself math is just a language in which we would like to look at the principles like you know be able to use the math to predict How something would behave, or in order to understand why something behaves the way it does. Uh, So sometimes uh, math becomes the overwhelming issue. Um, And uh, like I always like to stress to the students, like, you know, there is so far that math can go. and should be intimidating you uh, because it's really the physics that you should uh, consider first and then use math as a tool. So I like to see uh, students think through their problem and understand the principles and the concepts and then utilize math kind of like a tool um, and not let that uh, kind of supersede the uh the th- thought process i would say or like you know cloud the thought process to some extent so in order to address that i thought um i do want to teach um the i wouldn't say the right way but what would be perhaps a more logical way of thinking through something so like the critical thinking skill involved or the analysis involved Uh, how would you go from point A to point B? And why are you doing it? So instead of searching for an equation and then kind of plugging in the numbers, why would I choose that equation to begin with? That is a more fundamental question to be answered. So um, I think like uh, this is my very uh, small effort in trying to address the stigma associated with physics and the fear of physics in some cases, if I may say so.
0: And I think uh, it should also be noted in your teaching style, you are very visual in your use of diagrams. And I feel like that helps branch away from the strict mathematical structure of physics that I've experienced in the past, whether it be in high school or seeing my friends do it in undergraduate, that a lot of it was more equation-based. You see a problem, you just need to know what to plug in where you make that approach to, even if it's not a free body diagram where you're showing the forces acting on an object, just draw it out anyway, because it will be made easier. Where did you pick up that tool of just always being very clear with making a visual representation of a problem as opposed to just trying to figure it out in another way?
1: Yeah, I think that kind of provides a soft landing. So throughout my years of teaching, I have found that if I take a problem and I tell the students, okay, this is how you think through this. This is um, uh, the equation to use. Here are your givens. Here's your unknown. plug and chug, and you will be there. Um, if I used that approach, I lost a lot of students right there just because they cannot connect. Once again, like going back to what I um, kind of already mentioned, um, I do not like the fact that math overshadows the f- Uh, concepts of physics. Mm -hmm. So I think taking that uh, intermediate step of drawing things out helps you connect to the problem or understand the context of the problem. Okay, so it may be a very rough sketch. You don't have to draw everything out there. In fact, you want to keep it neat and not very clumsy, right? Uh, So whatever is really necessary to get the point across. And by getting the point across, in most cases, you're trying to uh, convince yourself that you understand the context of the problem, okay? So in that case, just drawing a rough sketch, setting up your coordinate system and all of that, uh, very soon you will find that that becomes second nature. And you're thinking through that even without uh, consciously doing it. At first thought, it feels like that takes up a lot of time. Oh my God, I'm going to read through this and draw the whole thing out. But if you look at the total time you take to process the problem, if you're not drawing, you will find at the end, it really optimizes your time. Because as you read each phrase, if you're drawing what is uh, the given information, you are not only processing it, you're also understanding and analyzing as you go along. Instead of just reading through And then rereading and then rereading to uh, like analyze it and go through. Read it once, but when you read it, comprehend as you go. And a good way to figure out if you comprehended the problem would be to draw the diagram. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it so happens when I'm grading students work because uh, you usually require them to draw out all their diagrams, um, like, you know, so um, it helps me catch mistakes very easily. And if caught early on, that prevents a lot of like, you know, frustration uh, during like the graded assessments. So like, you know um, how to think through unless you put it on paper, I will not be able to read what's on your mind. So the diagram speaks um, thousand words and I can really see how you're thinking through. And mistakes are so evident when you draw a diagram. And that leads to a very, very um productive discussion and feedback down the line.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the poetic terminology you used to use for it, uh, propagation errors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that, and most of it stems from the diagram, believe it mm-hmm. or not. Maybe you set up something wrong and then it keeps going, right? So um, it's very unforgiving in that sense. Awesome.
0: And you've talked about your approach to schooling the young minds, but even going back to when you were tutoring your brother in physics, um, what made you decide to go from undergrad and getting your master's in India to then come to the United States to then um, pursue an academic career? The
1: reason why I wanted to do my doctoral studies here is because uh, um, I think in... uh, like there are a lot of opportunities, especially in theoretical physics. Um, there are a lot of opportunities here for research. There are uh, diverse uh, research uh, topics and subspecialties, uh, So it was possible to branch out. And there were professors when I was completing my master's who uh, told me about the different specialties that were available in universities here which would not have been opportunities uh, that were available in Indian universities. So um, that kind of led the uh, route for me, so to speak. Like, you know, after this, I would probably look into that. But um, from the personal side of things, um, I I was also married uh, soon after my first year of masters. And so um, I came over to U.S. with my husband and continued my studies here. So everything kind of fell in place. Um, But the only thing I should mention here, uh, having grown up and being educated in the Indian uh, education system where the bachelor's is three years, but it's three years of concentrated physics. And then you move on to master's that that was one of the reasons why I decided to complete my master's there because in order to prove my equivalency here I would have to complete four years of bachelor's so that one um, additional year had to be accounted for and the rationale behind completing master's there was like okay if I already uh, completed half of the program why not wrap it up So I completed my master's uh, there before I came here, which was a huge bonus because um, over here in the typical uh, physics PhD programs, you start off with uh, most of those master's level courses which you need to take. And uh, for my background, uh, thankfully, I got to waive some of those requirements. And as a result of that, instead of taking what is known as the PhD qualifier after two years, I was uh, granted permission to take it after a year, so that definitely helped out.
0: Okay, and I was I was going to ask you that uh, personal question of was it hard coming here just by yourself, but you had your husband, so that's that's excellent. And did that help making the choice to Temple University because he had to move to somewhere? I'm assuming around the Philadelphia area, or
1: yes. Um, as a matter of fact, that was literally the school I kind of made up my mind because um, my husband was uh, pursuing some uh, advanced like uh, degrees here um, like as a supplemental master because he already had his master's and so on so but he was doing like some executive programs at temple so Mm -hmm. I would tag along Just to get a feel of what uh, university here looks like. So, I had spent like countless nights in the temple uh, Pele library, like, you know, getting ready for my GREs and all of that, while my husband had classes. And most of them were evening classes because they were uh, executive programs. So, uh, that definitely helped out get used to the campus. And uh, I also met some of the professors in the physics department to find out what they were um, researching on. And then some of my professors uh, back home, uh, like, you know, back in my undergrad and grad institutions in India, um, they told me that um, what is significant is not quite the university you graduate from, but your advisor. If doctoral advisor can definitely make or break your career um, just because you are investing so much of your life into this. Um, So I am so, so thankful they gave me that advice because I followed that and I did my due diligence and homework going through all the professors and their research interests and so on. And I ended up uh, finding a very, um, and it connected with the research topics that Dr. riceborough or uh, Professor um had uh, from Temple University. So I met with him even before I took my GREs and all of that, and I've uh, and we kind of got into this conversation uh, regarding his research, and it really fascinated me what he was doing. Um, so that kind of uh, Led me towards that, and uh, when I applied, I was like uh, very. um, uh, I almost made up my mind. Let's put it that way. Um, I did. uh, I applied to a couple more universities, like close by in the vicinity, and I got into those. But uh, Temple, I the moment they were the first to respond, just because I was so used to them. I visited the department so so many times. that I just went ahead and said yes. And I started off right away.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you jumped right into theoretical condensed matter physics, which is what we're here to talk about today.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Condensed matter physics has, um, like I already mentioned, when I spoke to Dr. Riseborough, he introduced me to uh, condensed matter, phys- theoretical condensed matter physics from the research perspective. So when I did my master's, Um, The way things go in India, you usually choose your specialization in uh, physics topics in master. So when I completed my master's, I had like solid state physics, which is equivalent to like condensed matter physics as one of my uh, uh, special electives. And along with that, I had statistical mechanics. So those were all like very theory heavy um, branches of physics. And I already had my foundation in that. So, what he was talking about made so much sense. And um, I really enjoyed mathematical physics, computational physics. So, um, uh, I was like, okay, this is a perfect match because I am going to use the skill set I already have, but I just need to be able to apply it and analyze, like, you know, uh, the results from uh, this specific field for a given system and so on.
0: And to get a better understanding of what you're talking about, I think it'd be wise for us to kind of break down what theoretical condensed matter physics means. And I think that starting with the word theoretical, I understand that there are two camps of physics. There's theoretical and experimental. Would you be willing to help us make the distinction between the two?
1: Yeah. Yeah, they are distinct, but they are like your right hand and left hand, like in order to lift something, you need both hands. And the same thing here um, when you, you, they work collaboratively. So theoretical physics um, is kind of like uh, the part of physics that uh, that helps you come up with the, based on the hypothesis. Like, you know, what would be a possible theory to be able to explain that phenomena? Okay. Without putting it to test. So it's almost like, you know, the concept, the um, proposed understanding, like this is what I'm seeing. Perhaps this is the reason why that's happening. So when you take that and you put it to test through your experiments and you get your experimental results, that's when you really know how good or bad uh, or not bad is not the right word, how good the theory is. And if there are significant deviations, that is very useful feedback because now the experimental results uh, can provide um, the theoretical physicists some basis on where to go back or like, you know, some other, instead of going back to square one, not necessarily, we can figure out where exactly do we need to go back and maybe tweak some assumption or revisit a calculation or uh, compute this in a different way or look at it in a different light and so on. So it kind of goes uh, hand in hand. It's a symbiotic relationship between the two. starting off with a the theory you look at the experimental results and then again from the experimental results you come back to theory refine fine tune put it back into tests right through your experiments and see if there's improvement if not then so it's a uh, uh, cycle like back and forth okay And if the experiment results are promising and the theory holds true, um, then you would like to be able to predict uh, the behavior of the system moving on and uh, predict other properties of the system. And then based off of that, Uh, The experimental group now sets up new experiments to see if your uh, proposed or uh, theories or predictions uh, really make sense. And you kind of go from there. And that's Mm -hmm. how science evolves or physics evolves.
0: So the theory is kind of a branching tree. And as more of the theory is proven through experimentation, then you can continue asking questions.
1: That That is correct. That is correct. And even from the experimental results, if things don't uh, quite match with the theory, you ask why. Mm-hmm. And that's a question uh, for theoretical physicists and for experimental physicists alike. Like, is that something that needs to be changed in the experimental setup? Or is it something that needs to be tweaked in the theory?
0: Gotcha. Like Newton seeing the apple fall from the tree? Then you ask the next question. Okay. All <laughs> right. So uh, then moving on to our next portion of this uh, term, theoretical condensed matter physics, condensed matter. So you were saying in our little pre-conversation before we hit the record button that condensed matter more related to solids, but you also said crystalline liquids, if you'd be willing to downshift a little bit on that.
1: Yeah. So uh, in fact, um, uh, when we talk about condensed matter, we are talking about um, interactions in objects where the microscopic uh, units of it, like be it molecules, atoms, uh, electrons, and so on, are are interacting with each other. Okay. So there is correlation between the behaviors and so on. And you're trying to figure out um, how the macroscopic properties of matter. Okay. So for example, specific heat, of something or magnetic susceptibility of something, right, of a, a system, or like it could be just a pure element or something like that, how could you explain that using macroscop- uh, microscopic properties of matter, okay? So uh, you there are some very well-tested microscopic theories, um, especially in the quantum theories and so on, the field theories, which you can use for the electrons atoms or molecules that make up the microscopic picture and they tell you w- what is responsible for the macroscopic property of that uh, system in place so that's where the connection is that's that's the study of condensed matter physics
0: so would something like melting point also be taken into consideration with condensed matter physics
1: yeah absolutely
0: oh, okay so you could see like the like the molecular or the The atomic weight of lead and how it has a correspondence and like it's atom, uh, like intermolecular forces between just lead atoms, how it would affect that melting point and seeing the physics between on the atomic level between those atoms and how that would affect macro scale observations and things like that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So and especially so for uh, very, uh, some of the Um, critical uh, systems that are being studied, for example, are the rare earths. And that's what I did my research on rare earth materials, Um, uh, especially concentrating on um, cerium, which is the first lanthanide. So these are the elements that sit at the bottom of the periodic table, right? You have those two rows, the lanthanides and the actinides. And the first one happens to be cerium. And if you look at the electronic configuration of cerium, you would find like, it has a 4F electron, okay? Mm-hmm. And that single electron can lead to a number of very interesting phenomena, okay? Which leads to different um, uh, applications of cerium as a rare earth uh, material. So, That's what I mean by connecting the microscopic to the macroscopic properties. Like you can use uh, the electronic structure or the lattice structure or whatever is relevant for the system that you're studying. Um, And as theoretical physicists, you would like to model that system. Okay, And when you model that system, you can take the results of that and uh, predict what the macroscopic properties would look like or what you expect would be the, let's say the change in the magnetic properties as you increase temperature, decrease, something like some change, what does that do to a specific macroscopic property of that material?
0: Okay, and a quick step back for those that are curious, when Dr. Basu brought up 4F as a um, electron space for an atom that corresponds to a subshell, which is part of the orbitals of an atom, which means the location of its electrons, or small negatively charged particles around an atom, just to kind of, you know, bring everyone into the mix for the conversation. But um, okay, so very interesting. So what do you think that um, theoretical condensed matter physics can do kind of in the immediate future? Like what in modern uh, science of this field are people working towards?
1: There are so many Uh, for example your lcd screen right Mm -hmm. that's a consequence of our application of condensed matter physics how those uh the like you know diodes liquid crystals and uh, any of the uh, forthcoming devices that you see um those are within the scope of condensed matter physics so there are so many applications not only that now uh big branch of condensed matter physics is also soft and living condensed matter physics, uh, which is a very strong research group in uh, uh, at Penn. So they work on like how condensed matter physics applies to biological systems. Mm -hmm. And how you can use the principles of physics to explain uh, living organisms and how they behave. So there are a lot of applications, even in, uh, like, you know, not only the physical world, but also in the biological world now.
0: Interesting. And could you quickly just go into what a biological system is for our listeners?
1: Yeah, biological, well, it could be anywhere down to, like, cells, to like, you know, uh, a study of how an organism behaves. And if you're trying to use these principles to explain how something happens, that is, um, even though like, you know, uh, soft condensed matter is not quite my expertise. Th- there are so many subfields in that where you could use um, these principles to explain Um, the behavior of organisms, and not only that, also devices which we use in biological systems, like, you know, uh, uh, usually like the corrective devices like hearing aids and things like that. I think there are some um, research being done on uh, these devices, which are useful uh, for corrective measures.
0: Interesting. Okay, thank you. And uh, just a little bit more terminology that I saw when looking into theoretical condensed matter physics is the idea of a superconductivity phase. What does that mean?
1: Oh, superconductivity. Yeah. Well, as the name suggests, it's like the superhero when you're thinking in terms of conductivity. Now, if you go back to uh, like you know the basic concept of Um, conductivity in something. Conductivity implies like, you know, you are, um, you have some energy in transit. So going back to Ohm's law in electricity magnetism, where you find that the, um, there is a relationship between the current flowing and uh, the resistance of the material kind of plays an important part in it, right? Um, greater the resistance of the material due to the microscopic structure, you find that the current flow changes based off of that if the potential difference remains unchanged uh, and so on. So that is yet another example where you can look at the microscopic uh picture and explain macroscopic properties, right? So uh, the question was, is it possible to have a state where you would have an infinite amount of current flowing uh, without any resistance to it? If that state is possible, that is the superconducting state. Okay. So um, ideally, um uh, superconducting state would imply that the collisions the resistance owes oh, this origin to the collisions between each of the atoms or like you know whatever the fundamental particle is in that conductor so if those reduced to zero you would have the current would have like a free flow through the conductor and that's when you would have a superconducting state so it's found that if cooled cooled enough um uh, most materials Uh, reach that state and are able to um, uh, exhibit superconductivity. Okay. Mm Theoretically speaking, just like the concept of absolute zero is um, a theoretical concept, but you never quite reach absolute zero, kind of along the same lines, if you were to take everything, the temperature of everything down to almost absolute zero, you would reach superconducting states for even the everyday materials that you have. But the uh, challenge is to be able to pull up what is known as the critical temperature, that's the temperature when uh, a a material or a system reaches the superconducting state. So to lower it, um, I'm sorry, to uh, ensure that the critical temperature is almost close to room temperature, that's when it would be useful because you would not require cryogenic conditions for uh, the superconducting state. Okay, so it's kind of like the vaccine issue that we have right now. If you need that cryogenic setup, there are a lot of strings attached, right, to the whole uh, thing. So. Most of the systems uh, exhibit superconductivity at uh, very low TC or critical temperatures. Mm -hmm. But to be able to bring that critical temperature high enough so that you can um, observe and utilize the superconducting state uh, for application purposes um, at and around room temperature, that is where we have research going on. And there have been a lot of materials that are uh, now exhibiting that.
0: And a quick, another aside, uh, and correct me if my analogy is completely incorrect, but the whole concept of an infinite current with uh, zero resistance, kind of thinking of it as your car is moving as the current and the winds in the road is the resistance. So you you basically, the fastest way from point A to point B is to have a straight road. But as your resistance increases, there are more turns and bends in the road requiring, there's more resistance from getting you from point A to point B. So the concept of superconductivity would just to be, have a cleanly straight road with an infinite amount of cars going cleanly down it.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, That is, um, that would be kind of a good comparison. I'd like to think of it also in terms of like New York City. If you're trying to go from point A to point B in Times Square in a regular, um, like, you know, maybe Saturday evening or something like that, uh, you would be uh, facing a lot of resistance, so to speak, to your path, uh, and you would be bumping and colliding along the way. Whereas um, if you had like a clear path, because maybe uh, everyone is um, not, they don't have the kinetic energy enough uh, because they have been super cool and they don't have the kinetic energy enough to bounce around, or uh, maybe you don't have many molecules or like you know many people in this case out on the roads, then you have a street, uh, straight path, right? Which you can walk through very quickly. So it really depends on how many collisions you have along the way. So the less the number of collisions, less the resistance, and uh, quicker you can get from point A to point B. So you so can kind of
0: you can look at it as collisions as foot traffic in the crosswalks going on. And by cooling it down, no one wants to go outside. So you're lowering the amount of collisions and people out there so that you have a cleaner street. Okay.
1: So that makes it easier to go from point A to point B. And keep in mind, like um, from uh, what we already know, even from the basic principles, temperature is uh, one of the uh, uh, physical quantities that we can uh, like, you know, uh, increase or decrease in order to increase or decrease the kinetic energy of the molecules in the system, right? So based on the temperature, um, the kinetic energy may be gained or lost.
0: And what you're saying is, although we can control temperature, that is in the bubble of experimentation where actual valid and practical use of things like superconductors would be more akin to being able to have it at room temperature, because like you said, the strings attached.
1: Yeah. So uh, temperature, since um, in some cases that may be difficult. Uh, We also look at magnetic fields being the other uh, physical quantity that we could probably use to reach the uh, superconducting state and that relates to the Uh, Messner effect that you see in superconductors based on the magnetic field. So you can use magnetic fields to kind of uh, utilize the levitation effects that you can get from magnetic fields and so on. So like that's another way to get to superconducting phases by tweaking the magnetic field uh, that you subject a system to. Okay, awesome.
0: And uh, the last term I wanted to go into really quick was the idea of ferromagnetism, and that might be applying to our magnetic field, but if you're willing to uh, divulge a little bit what that means.
1: Well, ferromagnetism is something we are all very familiar with, because like uh, I'm sure most of us have at some point of time played with magnets, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, have always admired the uh, like you know the repulsion and the attractive properties associated with magnets. So uh, ferromagnetism um, is this uh, uh, property of a special class of materials that can be easily magnetized so to speak okay so um, uh, what makes a ferromagnet a ferromagnet now, Um, If you look at the atom, you have the protons and the neutrons in the nucleus, right? And you have the uh, electrons going around it. So uh, essentially you have like positive charges, negative charges, and the neutral ones are also there, but the positive and the negative charges are definitely present. And as a result of that, you have like uh, spins um, and magnetic quantum numbers and so on. Um, So... When you have the spins of the system aligned in a specific direction, that is the key to ferromagnetism. So in um, a usual um, ambient temperatures or like conditions, you would find that these spins are all randomly arranged. Okay, there is no specific direction that they are aligned. Um, However, in a ferromagnet, if you subject it to magnetic field, you would find that these spins align in a specific direction. Mm -hmm. And that leads to like uh, a domain structure within it, uh, within the ferromagnet. Okay, so there are regions in the ferromagnet which when... uh, Uh, subjected to a magnetic field, you would find the spins lying parallel to each other in a specific direction. So it's almost like, you know, if you think of like the map of a country and you look at the states, imagine like, you know, all the people lined up, but in a specific direction in each state. Okay. But so there is some order that is brought in, um, like, into the system due to the presence of that magnetic field. And systems that respond in such a way are ferromagnetic systems. And uh, due to that magnetization, now you see the beautiful magnetic effects.
0: Interesting. Okay, oh, yeah. well, yeah, that, that makes sense. Thank you very much.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I guess with that uh, wonderful definition, I think this is a great place for us to uh, say our last words. And I was wondering for All those either afraid of physics, don't like physics, or anything um, other than that, uh, with a fear or hesitation that comes to approaching the topic, uh, what would you have to say to them, uh, Dr. Basu?
1: Well, I would like to uh, tell them that uh, you use physics every day in your life. Okay, you get into your car, uh, you turn on the ignition, your car moves at a certain speed. It is all relatable. Uh, We just need the proper mindset to explore physics. So let the math not overshadow physics. Uh, Let us look into applications of what we are learning uh, to our everyday life. And I think that's when we will really uh, enjoy the discipline of physics.
0: Very concise. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Basu. And thank you for all of you listening out there. Uh, This has been a great interview and uh, we'll see you next time.